Well, if you go back to Iowa, 1959, a snowy night, three singers, Waylon Jennings, Buddy Holly, and Richie Valens, they had been traveling together. They had some bus trouble, so they had gotten a small plane. There were not seats for everybody, and Buddy Holly and Richie Valens both were sick. They asked Waylon Jennings if they could take the plane, and he take the bus. As they liked to tease each other, as they were leaving to get on the plane, they told Waylon Jennings, I hope your bus breaks down. And he said back to them, well, I hope your old plane crashes. When Jennings woke up the next day to his shock and sadness, indeed, the plane had crashed and Buddy Holly and Richie Valance had died. Their life and their death was captured in the song, The Day the Music Died. For Jennings, though, it was a life-changing moment. For 40 years, he said he had nightmares and was broken over the last thing he said to them. He lost his friends, and also he was haunted by the fact he was supposed to be on that plane. He would go on to make a number of hit records, but he also would become a drug addict and struggled deeply with that. He went through several marriages until he married Jesse Coulter. Eventually, she came to faith in Christ, and she told him about that one day. And he said he agreed faith is important. It can be very helpful. It just was not something for him. However, as he got older, the diabetes and the abuse of the drugs took its toll on his body. And Jesse Coulter wrote about the last times of his life as he was getting more ill. And she wrote this. We moved back to Arizona, where Waylon longed for warm climate. We would talk about the past and he would say, I hurt myself, but mainly I hurt other people. I told him God is forgiving and he said, God may be, but I'm not. We had more times in hospitals, more physical complications. Then came that Thanksgiving day when I knew I had to speak and the time had come. Looks like you have something you want to say to me, darling, he said. If you've got something to say, go ahead and say it. He always seemed to know what was happening. I told him, are you ready to accept the Lord? He grinned and said, I knew you were going to ask that. It's a simple question, I told him. It all comes down to one thing. Are you ready to be God's man? He nodded and said, God's man. What do I have to do to become God's man? He said, what do I need to say? That you accept Jesus, that you love him as he loves you, and that you turn your life over to him. Waylon said those words, and I wept. He took my hand and said, I love you so much. He had declared that love to me a million times before, but this time his words were vulnerable, so soft, so sweet. His sincerity thrilled my heart. We're just a short time since Easter, and this picture of being God's man or God's woman, is something we want to talk about today. I think Martin Luther said it so well, live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and is returning tomorrow. Paul would write this about the resurrection Christ, resurrection in Christ, Romans 6, 4, we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Romans 6, 4, that Jesus gives us new lives, lives lived differently. My challenge for each of us today is to stop and say, you know, am I living my life differently? 
And if I'm not, what is stopping me from doing that? We're going to look at a picture that Christ paints here this morning and take some moments to consider some things that might be blocking us from living that new life in obedience. Let me, though, read something that Beth Moore wrote about living that new life, what it means to be God's man or God's woman. Knoxville Airport, waiting to board my flight, I had the Bible on my lap and was intent upon what I was doing. I had a marvelous morning with the Lord. I say that because I want to tell you it's a scary thing to have the Spirit of God really work in you. It can be dangerous for a thousand reasons. I tried to keep from staring, but he was such a strange sight, humped over in a wheelchair, skin and bones. The strangest part of him was his hair and nails. Stingy gray hair hung well over his shoulders down his back. His fingernails were long, clean, but strangely out of place on this old man. There I sat trying to concentrate on the word to keep from being concerned about a thin slice of humanity served on a wheelchair a few seats away from me. All the while my heart was growing more and more overwhelmed with a feeling for him, but let's admit it, curiosity is a heap more comfortable than true concern. I had walked with God long enough to see the handwriting on the wall. I could feel God working on my spirit. I started to argue with him, God, please don't make me witness to this man. Not here in front of this crowd. I'll do it in front of the, I'll do it in private on the plane, but not in front of this gawking audience. Then I heard it. I don't want you to witness to him. I want you to brush his hair. Sometimes God leads us to places we're not comfortable with, but part of that new life is to live differently, do things differently, and make decisions maybe we had not made before. As we're a few days now since Easter, it's the time to stop and say, you know, how does that change my life knowing that he is risen? That he has died for my sins to bring eternal life, but he said my life now would be different because he now lives in me. As Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But the life I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. You know, if you go back to 400 BC, there was a monk by the name of Arnaeus, and he had taken this vow of just renouncing material things. But he liked to go to the marketplace, and his students wrote about one day he stayed in the marketplace walking around for hours until one day a student said to him, if you've renounced material things, why do you spend so much time in the marketplace? To which he replied, I'm allowing my heart to rejoice at all the things I just don't need. You see, when we come to that place in Christ to say, you know what, I'm crucified with him, I no longer live, we find that the things we used to think we need, we no longer need. So let's take a moment and look what Jesus has to say about his fulfillment in us. John 6, 29, it says this, Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What is the will of God? What is it to do the work of God? It all hinges here on what Jesus said. The will of God, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. Again, believing, knowing by experience. When people say, what is God's will for my life? Jesus says the work of God is to believe in the one that he has sent. To believe in the promise, to believe in the new life, to believe in the calling, to believe in his word. Tony Robbins says, no, it is in your decisions and not your conditions 
that determine your destiny. We're faced with a decision, and that decision leads to consequence for good or for bad. And we have to make a decision with what Jesus says to us when he says, the work of God, the will of God is to believe in Christ, to become God's man or God's woman. Beth Moore continues her story. The words were so clear, my heart leapt in my throat. I said, God, as I live and breathe, I'm ready to witness to this man. Again, as clearly as I have ever heard an audible word, God seemed to write this across the wall of my mind. That is not what I said, Beth. I don't want you to witness to him. I want you to go brush his hair. I looked up at God and equipped, I don't have a hairbrush. How am I supposed to brush his hair without a hairbrush? God was so insistent, I almost involuntarily began to walk toward this man. As I thought of the verse in Timothy, I will thoroughly finish you unto all good works. I stumbled over to his wheelchair thinking I could use one myself. Even as I retell the story, my pulse quickens. I feel those same butterflies. I knelt down in front of him and said, Sir, may I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? He looked at me and said, What did you say? May I have the pleasure of brushing your hair? To which he responded at volume 10, Little lady, if you expect me to hear you, you're going to have to talk louder than that. At this point, I took a deep breath. I blurted out, Sir, may I have the pleasure of brushing your hair. At this point, every eye in the place darted right at me. I watched him look up, and he said to me, If you really want to. I could hardly utter the words, Yes, sir. I would be pleased. I have one problem, though. I don't have a hairbrush. I have one in my bag, he responded. Two verses after Jesus had said, the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent, we're told that the people in the crowd said to him, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Why did they respond about the manna? Jesus was talking about believing that he is Messiah. And they responded by saying, you know, we're kind of special ourselves. We're related to Moses. And Moses did some pretty special things too. And Jesus goes on to tell them, Moses did not give you manna. The Father above gave you manna. And it was a symbol of me. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. We're going to see, though, there are two parts to the manna. There are two things here to take and begin to apply to our lives here this day. You know, if you go back and you study ancient sources, very fascinating. They often discuss what may have happened to Adam and Eve. There are stories. They're not inspired scripture, but there are stories going back centuries about Adam and Eve after the fall, hiding in a cave at the back of it, far from the entrance. So no light could permeate where they hid. And they sat in there for years, depressed, not even able to look at each other, not wanting to look at each other. Stories also developed in the first century about Judas. 
And again, there are stories that were to give a picture of the destructive power of sin. But there were stories about Judas after his betrayal that said, you know, he was disfigured and people were frightened by him to look at him. And then he had this terrible stench, so nobody even wanted to be in the room with him. Again, these are anecdotal stories that are built up to just paint a picture that sin has consequences. It is in the decisions, not the conditions of our life, that brings about the outcome. And Jesus says to the crowd, I am that manna. I'm the bread of life. And there's a decision they're going to have to make, the decision we have to make as well, with his presenting the fact that he is the bread of life. If we take and eat of that life, we will not then hunger again. You go back to Exodus 16, just a couple verses about that original moment when the manna fell. Notice what happens here, Exodus 16. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites in the morning you will be filled with bread or manna. You'll be filled. That is the picture of heavenly manna, Christ. That he is that filling that brings about fulfillment in us. And then it goes on to say, Moses said to them, it is the bread, notice, the Lord has given you to eat. Not something they created themselves, not something they worked for, but God provided it. That is grace. There was no work on their behalf. He brought the manna by miracle into their life. And then it says, everyone gathered as much as they needed. That is the key about the manna. And Jesus said that manna was a picture of him, that it comes from the Father and it brings fulfillment. And in that manna, each one had everything that they would need. There's another side to the manna. We'll see here in just a moment. But back to Beth Moore. I went around the back of the wheelchair. I got on my hands and knees, unzipped his carry-on, hardly believing what I was doing. I began to brush the old man's hair. It was clean, but tangled and matted, and I don't do many things well, but I must admit, I've had notable experience untangling knotted hair, having two little girls. And so like I had done with Amanda and Melissa, I began brushing at the very bottom of the strands, remembering to take my time not to pull. A miraculous thing happened to me as I brushed his hair. Everybody else in the room disappeared. There was no one alive for those moments except that old man and me. I brushed and I brushed and I brushed every tangle out of his hair. I know this sounds strange, but I've never felt that kind of love for another soul in my entire life. I believe with all my heart for those few minutes, a portion of that very love of God is what I felt. His hair was finally as soft and smooth as an infant's. I slipped the brush back in the bag, went around the chair to face him. I got back down on my knees, put my hands on his knees and said, Sir, do you know my Jesus? He said, Yes, I do. I've known him since I married my bride. She wouldn't marry me until I got to know the Savior. He said, You see, the problem is I haven't seen my bride in months. I had open heart surgery. She's been too ill to come see me. I was sitting here thinking to myself, what a mess I must be for my bride. Only God knows how often he allows us to be part of a divine moment. He could only have known what that man needed. It was a God moment, and I will never forget it. The next part of Exodus 16, it tells us this. 
Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some paid no attention to Moses. Some of them left the manna until the morning. And here's the key. It bred worms and began to smell. Manna was what? Daily bread. What did Jesus pray and teach us to pray? Provide, O Father, our daily bread. He is the daily bread, moment to moment. What did people do, though? They did not trust in faith. They said, let me cover my bases. They took more manna and stored it overnight. What happened to it? It bred worms and began to smell. What is the spiritual lesson? God brings manna, the picture of Christ, into our life by His grace. When they took the manna to hide it overnight, that was self-effort trying to add Jesus to their own efforts. That's what religion does. And what does self-effort produce? It breeds worms and began to smell. We cannot add to what Christ has done. To try to add to the cross is a great offense. But to surrender to the complete grace of God and the free gift in Him, that is the work of God, to believe in He who has been sent. So let us be God's man or God's woman and live, as Paul said, a new kind of life. If you've not been doing that, and maybe it's been years, today is the day to stop and to say, Lord, what have I been doing to block what you're trying to do in me and through me, even some things that might be uncomfortable? Let us close with Beth Moore. Our time came to board and we were not on the same plane. I was deeply ashamed of how I acted earlier. I would have been so proud to have got on that aircraft with him. I still had a few minutes. I gathered my things to board the airline hostess, though, returned from the corridor, tears streaming down her cheeks. She said, that old man is sitting on the plane sobbing. Why did you do that? What made you do that? I said, do you know Jesus? He can be the bossiest thing. And we got to share. I learned something about God that day. He knows if you're exhausted because you're hungry, you're serving in the wrong place, or it's time to move on, but you feel too responsible to budge. He knows if you're hurting or feeling rejected. He knows you're sick or drowning under a wave of temptation. Or he knows if you just need your hair brushed. He sees you as an individual. Tell him your need. I got on my own flight, sobs choking my throat, wondering how many opportunities just like that one had I missed along the way, all because I didn't want people to think I was strange. God didn't send me to that old man. He sent that old man to me. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent.